Welcome. This is jazz, just the way we like it. My name is Alfonso Severos, and this is my weekly jazz podcast, <clears throat> recorded live at Brick Arts in downtown Brooklyn, the People's Republic of Brooklyn. We play those classic jazz songs from the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s. And every now and then, we play some of the modern stuff. We also discuss political issues, and politics. Uh, I play songs that I listened to as a young man growing up Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, right here in the Marcy Projects. And here I am now, many years later, playing these very songs for your pleasure and also to introduce a younger generation to that fabulous art form known as jazz. I'm in the studio, as always, with my co-host and longtime friend, 60 years, Lawrence Williams. Hey, Larry. What's up, Fonz? How are you today? I'm good, man. I'm good. Can't complain. Good, good, Feel good, good brother. Good, good to hear that. Another podcast, man. Another one. Another yeah. one. We're moving on, man. Oh, yeah, man. You know, this is uh, number 153, if, I, if my memory serves me correct. I think you're right. I think it's 153. Yeah. And we're in February, folks. And February uh, is a significant month because it's the month of uh, black history, even though black history should be year-round. But unfortunately, uh, in this country, we separate black history from American history. But the truth be told, black history is not only American history, it's world history. And once we understand that and make that connections, I think uh, it becomes less difficult to remove that from the history lessons. So we're going to focus a little bit on black history. And, you know, we always start the podcast out with a song, a poem, something that addresses the issue of social justice. But today we're going to look at the issue of black history through music. And uh, we're going to play a piece done by a fabulous sax player uh, called Gary Bartz. And he did a piece called I've Known Rivers. And that song is based on the poem uh, by Langston Hughes, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, one of Langston Hughes' most famous poems, a poem in which Langston Hughes wrote when he was 17 years old. And it's a poem that makes the connection between past and present uh, through history. And so this is especially important these days with the attack on black history and the removing it from elementary and high school courses. So let's listen to Gary Bartz uh, do his interpretation of the poem, uh, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, and this is called I Have Known Rivers. Sit back, folks, and enjoy this piece. <laughs> ¶¶ 
inspired by a poem written by Langston Hughes. I'm sure most of you have heard of Langston Hughes. And he wrote a poem about rivers. And we call this song, I've Known Rivers.
Gary Botts, I Have Known Rivers, based on Langston Hughes' poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, a poem in which addresses the idea of black history as the connection between past and present. Um, wow, that was a powerful piece, Larry. Yeah, sure was. So yeah. appropriate for Black History Month. Yeah, yeah, yeah man. That, that, and, that, and the way that he plays that sax, he makes the screams that time. Yeah. Just let you know I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what it's about, and 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 that <clears throat> that poem that Langston Hughes wrote as a young young man, seventeen years old, is such an, an extraordinary, extraordinary symbolic poem, because it's so important even today. It speaks to why Black history is important to teach, and that is, the present, the presence makes sense only by understanding the past. We have to understand the past to make sense of the present. And I'll give you a perfect example. I have, in the course of my life, had conversations with newly arrived immigrants, and they questioned the status of some African Americans, and they had a difficult time processing why we haven't progressed forward. But they had no idea of the history that occurred that preventing us from prospering forward. All they do is look at the present. So without that sense of the past, you don't understand the conditions that led to and create the presence. And so it's so important that we increase black history teaching in schools, and not only in the elementary, the high school, and the college level. You know, because a number of reasons, no matter how much we want to separate, Black history is American history. There is no American history without black history. The very Constitution was designed in a way 
to address and incorporate the issues of slavery. Throughout the entire history of this nation, it was a number one topic. So we need to include it. We need to teach the full story. We need to recognize and accept the good and the bad of the American past. We can't pick and, and choose. And new immigrants need to understand the struggle for rights that came before, before them arriving here. If they benefit from uh, anything in this country, social benefits, you know, people pay the price in both blood, time, and effort for those rights to be there for them. Uh, and they need to understand that. And, and not only is, is that important for new immigrants, we have to include the fact that black history was a history, especially the history of struggle during the 60s, that motivated liberation movements all around the world. They used that as an example. Uh, so it's important that we teach black history, Larry. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, uh, the fact that uh, black history is in this country is really American history. I mean, you can't take, a, take slavery out of a conversation when you're talking about the history of this country. And uh, the recent uh, a candidate uh, for Republican uh, president, uh got scolded for not including that in the speech that she made and she had to backtrack um, and 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 uh, admit that slavery was part of the history of this country. Yeah, she said she didn't include it in answering uh, the causes of the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I don't know how you do that uh, without including slavery as being part of it. I know originally it's about secession and secession was really about the South wanted to keep slavery. It was, what it was about slavery. There's no doubt. Yeah. Whatever. So, so yeah. there was. There's no no question about that. Yeah. So uh, there's so many things that uh, Black Americans have done uh, after slavery and during slavery that this country hasn't has not oh, yeah. acknowledged even before. So that's an important history to include because it defines who we are. Yeah. And for the reasons I stated. And, you know, uh, you, you're like me. We went to school in the 50s and the 60s, and we went all the way to the 12th grade. I can speak for myself. The, and I, every year I took history classes, and the only two black people I heard was about was Booker T. Washington and uh, what's the guy with the peanut? Carver. Yeah, uh, yeah, George Washington Carver. George Washington Carver. That was yeah. all that was taught. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not even about the uh, the American Revolution. No, they, none of it was taught. None, none of that was taught no. about the guy that, uh, the tall yeah. guy that uh, was shot in the beginning of the war. Yeah. Uh, there was so much that happened that, that was excluded from our education yeah. that we had to learn on our own. So I don't want I don't want this to go back to that. You know, I remember in the 1960s, it was like 1969, 1970. <clears throat> I was already a college graduate and then did not take a black history class because there wasn't none. Uh, we, we, you know, in the school I went to, we fought to get a black student union. Um, 
not even a history class, but that was at that time, that was, you know, a major accomplishment for us. Um, later on, I assume people got black history classes and, you know, history majors in, in, in African and black history majors. But in, in, in the late 60s and the 70s, it was just to get organization, just to be seen, just to be heard. Yeah. And I remember I was a college graduate. And I went with a friend of mine, Cindy Jackson, who was going to a community college and right here in New York City. And he was telling me about this black history class he was taking at night. And here was the thing. So I went with him to, to his class, and the class was packed. Half the class was people not even registered in the course. And there was this, you know, African professor. And I mean, Larry, in, a, in an hour and 15 minutes, he just not only opened my eyes, but shaped my understanding of history that was never done before, how he made the connections between different groups. I remember him talking about uh, that the Greek civilization was built on the Egyptian civilization, and the Roman civilization was built on the Greek civilization, and so forth and so on, and how the connectiveness of history. Yeah, yeah. And so you can't... No civilization sort of built itself out without contributions from others at some point in time. And uh, it was just an eye-opener, uh, that class. But here I was, a college graduate, the first time really learning about black history. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's wild. It's just, it's yeah. just that in, uh, I think in the beginning of the 70s, they started offering black history as a course of study. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was because of people like you who— who demonstrated and, and insisted upon yeah. having that included as part of yeah. the curriculum in that in, in your school, and that happened throughout the country. I know I it know. happened. And you, there are places, uh, all I mean, there are universities now. Practically every one of them have black studies as a as a a, a course study. You can get a PhD in it. That's what I'm. Yeah, that, that, there's enough information to do yeah, that. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the thing was is that, you know, at that time, we were reading about black people, but we weren't putting the picture together. No, no. You need I, a course to, to make that make sense. Yeah. Now, you just can't read about individuals without making the connection. Yeah, that's for sure. Wow. So, folks, this is Black History Month. And for those who don't know, it was started by uh, Carter G. Wilson, uh, who started it. And he picked February only because it was the birth month of both Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. But the African-American uh, has always been interested in history, regardless of the segregation and the not including us in the history and stories of this country. For instance, you can go back. The American Negro Historical Society that started in 1897. And it was a group, it was upper-class blacks, but to discuss and, and research scholarships, scholarship on the issue of black history. That was 1897. Then you had the, the Negro Historical Society that was started by Schomburg and this guy, John Edward Bruce, in 1911. But before that, you had the American Negro Academy, and that was a major acad black academic scholarship organization on research and publishing of black history. That includes such people of W.E.B.D. Du Bois, Carter G. Wilson, Paul Lawrence Dunmar, Richard Wright, 
John Weldon Johnson, Arturo Alfonso Schomburg. And that organization lasted from 1897 to 1928. So we have a history. If they didn't want to tell our story, we had a history of researching and uh, having our story researched and told. So uh, I don't want to see things go back, you know. Uh, And it's amazing that, that they're eliminating so much stuff from the history of this this nation. All right, Larry. Matt. That's that's fear on their part. That's once again, it's about fear that that's causing that they don't want us to get uh, you know one inch above where we are now. If it's up to a lot of these people, we would be back to the fifties. Yeah, yeah, and where where we didn't have any rights practically at all. You know, so I'm grateful today for the rights that we have. But there's a lot more that can be done and a yeah. lot more that will be done, hopefully yeah. during my lifetime and, and the lifetime of uh, my family. Thank you. I hear you, brother. Wow. Okay, folks. You know, we, that's our little discussion here on uh, 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 black history, African-American history. But, you know, we're about jazz. So uh, let's get to it, bro. Today's show is about two fabulous artists. Uh, different generations, but fabulous artists. Archie Shep, whoa, powerful man. And Esperanza Spalding, young, brilliant bassist. Two geniuses who expand our whole idea of jazz. And we're going to start a little bit out with uh, Archie Shep and some of his uh, collaboration records. And... uh, the first record we're going to play is a piece called Arsip Shep he did with Jason Morin. And of course, being Black History Month, this makes sense because this is an old, you know, Negro spiritual called Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. Archie Shep and Jason Morin. Just two artists. Check it out.
You know sometimes I feel Like a motherless child Sometimes I feel Like a motherless child Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a long way from home, a long way. Archie Shep, sometimes I feel like a motherless child with uh, Jason Moran. Wow, that was a powerful piece. Now, Archie Shep is not only a fabulous sax and piano player, but he also was a playwright. And his his progression in jazz varied. He was greatly influenced at one point by Ornette Conan and went into a free jazz avant-garde style. But he was an educator, too. Now, he was born in uh, Florida, but grew up in Philly. He uh, taught at the University of Buffalo and eventually was recruited by the University of Massachusetts, uh, Amherst, in the music department and became a professor. So he wrote plays. He made statements. He was out there. You know, he traveled throughout the world playing in Europe and in Africa. And uh, he was true to his roots. And this is an interesting piece that he did. 
sometimes I feel as a motherless child. And Archie Shep did co- collaborations with just one other musician. And in this case, it was Jason Moran on piano. That's it. It was just sax and piano. Yeah. Uh, and man, that came out fabulous, Larry. It did, it certainly did. And, and, and I think he was playing the alto on that one. And, uh, you know, it's just the tonality uh, that he, that, he uh, uh, that comes out of his horn. I, I just love hearing him play. And uh, uh, this is the first time I've heard the, uh, the piano player, but he was imp- improvising with the notes here and there with, the, with this particular uh, song because, uh, you know, every once in a while in jazz we go, we move off a little bit, and then we come right back to whatever the, the main thing is. And uh, sometimes I feel like a motherless child is like one of those old gospel spirituals that go way back to uh, slavery time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. so this is, uh, you know, once again, it's, in, it's in, in tune with what we're talking about today. Absolutely, Larry, absolutely, man. That was a... Fabulous piece, man. You're right about the piano and sax playing. He he he, he nailed it, and so did uh, Moran on the piano. Let's take a different perspective or another style of Archie Shep because he played all kinds of ways, man. His music at one point was very political and social commentary, but here's one in which when this was when he was uh, very much influenced by Ornette Coleman, and he did a piece of Ornette Coleman uh, called Lonely Woman, and he did this with Jokin Khan, Lonely Woman, Archie Shep, and this is a much different style. Ornette Coleman's song. Thank you. 
Man, that's uh, Archie Shep and Joe Clean Con in uh, that uh, on that Coleman piece, "Lonely Women." Man, you can see Avigan free jazz just pushes the limit. It yeah. really pushes the limit, Larry. Go ahead, yeah. man. I yeah, know you're excited. Yeah. yeah, no, man. It's just that 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 Joaquin, the piano player, was just so fast and. The speed was keeping up. When Archie fluttered, he could flutter on the piano just as well. And he was just, I like that avant-garde uh, type of music where where one musician is playing something and the other one plays a response. And it, and it's, and it all comes together. It's all so yeah, beautiful. Yeah. It all comes together. Uh, you got to listen to this. You got to listen. You got to listen. I get, I get... I feel the music. I, I get. I really feel like mm-hmm. there's a spiritual connection with the, with the way that they play when they when they wow. when, I, when I hear avant garde music. I just get. I just get into it's it. It's interesting that you said that because the, the the musicians that play that will talk about a spiritual connection. Yeah. With the music. Yeah, I get a spiritual connection with it. I can hear you, brother. I can hear you, Archie Shep, folks. Uh, check him out. But we're not finished with Archie Shep. We're going to play one more piece that he plays with a uh, Chuco Valdez on a little Afro-Cuban project. So here's, here's Archie Shep on another stratosphere. Check him out.
absolutely smoking folks that's Archie Shep with uh, Truco Valdez and his uh, band on the Afro-Cuban project man wow Larry wow Andrew. that was beautiful man I didn't know that he played uh, uh, Latin I didn't, I've never heard of him with a Latin band well in his younger years he played in the Latin band oh okay cause that yeah. was really smoking man yeah. that was on top of yeah, everything that the, was the, wow. The, the 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 timing and everything. Even yeah. though he was playing that sort of free jazz, but he had the timing and yeah, beat. The, and the beat was there. And the music was there. I yeah. mean, like, and uh, the uh, Chico was like, ooh, ooh. I mean, that's a. Oh yeah, yeah. He's a great uh, pianist. I've never oh, heard yeah. him before. Oh no, they're, they're, he's he's you know powerful Cuban jazz man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I really group. loved that. Love that. All right, folks, man, that was uh, Archie Shep, man. We played a little bit of his stuff. We just scratched the surface of the, the music that he has out there. And we're going to, for the remainder of the time, uh, play the, our second artist, Esperanza Spaulding. Man, what a talent. She was born in 1984 in Portland, Oregon. You don't think of jazz players coming from Portland, Oregon, man, but she is a prodigy. Uh, she was a prodigy. Uh, by the time she was 20 years old, she was an instructor at Berkeley, the, the, the prestigious Berkeley College of Music. And uh, she went on to become a professor at Harvard. You know, she eventually left. She won numerous Grammy Awards and other kinds of recognitions. Uh, she's a composer, bass player, singer, you name it. Here she go in a piece called and this is in Spanish. I'll let Larry give the title of it. <laughs> Come on, Larry. Tell me your, work your Spanish, brother. Okay, which one is it? Uh? Right here. What is that? That is Cuerpo uh, y Alma, Body and Soul. Yep, that's it, Body and Soul. I don't know about the pronunciation, brother, but the English was good. <laughs> here she is. On bass, Esperanza. Mi corazón 
Tristeza 
Wow, wow, wow. That's uh, Esperanza Spaulding, man. She was scatting and playing the bass at the you same time. time. You know what I, what I was thinking? I said, if there's a possibility in my mind, she's scatting in Spanish. <laughs> I was just saying, like, the, the way that she did it, it sounded like, in the beginning, it was like, Spanish to yeah, me, yeah. instead of oh, like yeah. like an English scat. Yeah. But Cuerpo y Alma, which is body and soul, is beautiful. The oh, way yeah. that she sings yeah. it, and the, you know, like the the, the, the lyrics to that is a beautiful. She sings. Song. She she performs this song both in Spanish and in English. Yeah, yeah. I could yeah. I could see. I mean, like she's got the 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 quality. She got the chops. Uh, yeah, yeah. She, she got she the chops and the skills. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love the bass. And I was just thinking. I said, like, she can play that bass. Uh, oh my God. Yes, she can. Yes, yeah. she can. Yes, she can. She's up there with Ron Carter. And, and, oh, yeah, and, she is. And, uh, Absolutely. Get, yeah, she's up there. And a young girl, young, young, young. Here's another piece that, you know, folks know about her. This is a piece she sang in English, man. Jazz ain't nothing but soul. Yeah, yeah. jazz singer it's true but it's not maybe um what you might be expecting like we're not gonna go scooby dooby 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 scoop booby scoop scooby scoop 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 no that's the only time because the rest of it is a lot more like la 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 la
She smoked it, she smoked it, she smoked it, she smoked it, brother. That is for sure. Wow, she is she's a little thing, but she is so big on that instrument. She's so small compared to that instrument, but she plays the hell out of it. Yeah. She plays the hell out of it, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, man, let's give people a little understanding of who she is. I'm going to take two minutes before we play the last song on the interview with her. She became the first jazz performer to win a Grammy for Best New Artist. She learned the violin at the age of five and went on to launch her career, which included teaching at Harvard. She explores how music heals the soul in her newest solo album, 12 Little Spells. And she spoke to our Walter Isaacson about how she's pushing the boundaries of jazz. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you know, your music is such a rich hybrid of many different things. Mm. Tell me about your personal background, growing up in Portland mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sort of the mix that made you. Yeah, wow. Well, I grew up in what we call Inner Northeast Portland. and A rough neighborhood. Yeah, it was the roughest neighborhood you could find in Portland. Um, compared to some other cities, I think we had a milder version of rough. There were some <laughs> nights of sleeping in bathtubs because of gunfire outside. Um, but from my perspective, I, I didn't really process like the danger, right? Because um, in the house, we were reading a lot, and my mother was playing a lot of music. Mm -hmm. So I, I grew up surrounded by records and by the radio on a lot. And starting from five, I was in music programming. So my life, as I remember it, was a lot of music playing and a lot of reading and a lot of talking with my mother about books and about sound. So it didn't really, really register. And you came from a multi-ethnic background yourself. Mm. Has that affected your music? I mean, your um, father and your mother. Tell me about mm. them. Well, 
My father is a average brother, you know, black man uh, without uh, knowledge of our ancestry to the continent of Africa, um, specifically knowing where, what region our blood comes from in that direction. But, um, and my mother is a mix of many European ancestries and some African-American ancestry and to answer your question, maybe growing up without um, an anchored sense of cultural identity, meaning it's not, it's not centered in an identifiable culture that I can point to and say like, oh yeah, I'm one of them. Oh yes, I'm one of them. Um, maybe that has allowed me a sort of um, freedom or non-expectation when I move through the world to be associated or affiliated with a camp. I, I don't feel beholden to any kind of musical genre or cultural center. I'm designing it as I go with whatever I find that I like. Um, and that very much is my way through the world um, culturally as well. And you picked up music around age five, sort mm -hmm. of from your mother. Your mother was studying it mm -hmm, a little mm -hmm, bit. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're playing Beethoven, is that right? Um, yes, there were Mendelssohn and Beethoven was in there and Mozart was in there. I mean, I, I heard Yo-Yo Ma play, Bach cello suite. You Bach heard Yo-Yo Ma play. I heard Yo-Yo Ma play in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I, I can remember the sensation, like the total body activation hearing that music and I had I never felt a sensation like that before and I just remember going like I have to do that whatever that whatever is happening right there I I need and to how old were you? five um Wow, Larry. Yeah, folks, that's just a little bit of her in an interview. Esperanza Spalding, five years old, listening to Beethoven and making up her mind she had to do that. Yeah, and I, I, there was one other thing that struck me was the fact that when Yo Ho Ma, uh, Yo Yo Ma, was playing, it uh, had a physical effect on her uh, that probably led her in the direction of the bass, and and as young as she was, she was yeah, able to, yeah. to connect to uh, the string instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a beautiful thing if it can happen that early. You have a direction to start at. And to go go forward to that has to be that has to be genetic man. It has to be some predisposition in the genes. Oh uh, yeah, know, I, for that I, kind of ability, talent, and interest. Yeah, I I agree with you one hundred percent on that because well, it just doesn't come out of the air. Yeah, well, Larry, man, it's that time, brother. Wow, man. <laughs> Wish we could have heard some more yeah, Esperanza, but no. But it was beautiful the way it was. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it was just a great finding out about uh, who's a little bit of who she is. Yeah, and what, and what her music. philosophy and what yeah. her philosophy is. So, folks, we listened to, we played some Auntie Shep, we played some Esper Esperanza Spalding, and we discussed some issues of Black history. Man, you can't do any better for the month of February. Uh, <laughs> so I hope you guys enjoyed the show, enjoyed the podcast, excuse me. You know, we definitely enjoyed uh, putting it on for you. And we're going to go out on a speak, 
piece by Esperanza Spaulding, which she did a tribute by playing one of uh, Wayne's shorter pieces called Endangered Species. This song that we're about to play for you is part of the reason that I'm fortunate enough to know the wonderful Wayne Shorter. <laughs> so, nobody's expected to catch all the lyrics, even though I wrote them and I'm very proud of them. I don't expect you to catch them, so just know that it's dedicated to your survival.
Peace and love, folks. See you next time.